LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Dr. Eric Karlstrom, a former professor of geography at California State University. The world is clearly facing an environmental crisis. Some of the problems of pollution and resource depletion are so serious that they risk the extinction of entire species and perhaps even all life on Earth. More than any other risk, however, the danger posed by global warming, now known as climate change, looms largest over the planet. The causes of climate change are hotly debated, but the dominant view today is that human activity, and specifically the burning of fossil fuels and associated discharge of carbon dioxide into the Earth's atmosphere, is by far the most significant. As a result, massive programs designed to permanently change our society, economy, lifestyle and the way we interact with nature are being implemented. These aim to drastically cut our energy use, material standard of living and ultimately the human population. But what if our understanding of the causes of climate change is flawed? Is it possible that the shifts in weather activity we are witnessing are simply part of a much larger picture? One in which the Earth's climate is forever changing and evolving over millions, even billions of years. We undoubtedly need to use less energy to clean up the environment and conserve the valuable natural resources without which we cannot survive, but we must do so in the right way and for the right reasons. Following years of research and with highly specialised knowledge, Dr. Karlstrom has concluded that the issue of climate change has been dangerously corrupted and that it is being exploited to serve nefarious political, economic and social agendas. Hello and welcome, Eric Karlstrom, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, good morning, Greg. Yeah, it's good to be here. I'm coming to you uh, from uh, Crestone, Colorado. Uh, our topic, I believe, is global warming, and the uh, temperature when I got up this morning was about minus 12 degrees Fahrenheit. I, I'd have to uh, look at a conversion chart, but it's pretty cold. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's pretty cold here too, actually. Now, just to start off, um, one thing I'm going to say about myself personally is I don't believe anything. I either know it or I don't know it. And when it comes to the questions surrounding, the controversial questions surrounding global warming or climate change as we now have to call it um, there's a lot of unknowns out there but I certainly don't believe anything about it now in your work you have um, demonstrated with your um, facts and figures and work you've been doing for a long time now uh, that your well let's say belief you're, you're you're happy that you've established that the man-made global warming stroke climate change phenomenon is actually a fraud now this is a very emotional issue people get very passionate about it uh, it's very divisive, it's controversial, and people doing work uh, like you are, and even people who haven't done any of the research but who are sceptical about it, they are now labelled deniers. 
And I should say that questioning this issue, the issue of man-made global warming, is not insisting on business as usual. You know, I'm sure you would agree there are some very real environmental problems out there that need to be addressed urgently. But nonetheless, that being said, the Earth has been cooling since around 1998, and um, global warming, climate change, whatever you want to call it, is driven much more likely by the sun, by ocean temperatures, even by cosmic rays. So perhaps you can set out just the big picture um, of the work that you've been doing in this area. Yeah, well, you, you did a nice uh, job of, of laying out the issues, uh, Greg. I just retired uh, from 30 years of being a geography professor uh, at uh, three universities, and uh, my topic was physical geography. And uh, I got my PhD in Calgary, Alberta, so there were lots of Brits there, and and. Uh, and uh, most uh, Brits, I think, are fairly well educated in geography, and they probably know that physical geography includes uh, uh, ge uh, geomorphology, climatology, uh, soils, and biogeography. And my particular uh, areas of research have been uh, in geomorphology or landscape evolution, soils, and climate change. I got my PhD in 1981 from the University of Calgary. My topic was the glacial history of Glacier National Park and Waterton National Parks right along the border between Canada and the United States. I got my master's degree from the University of Wyoming uh, in 1977, and the topic there was geoarchaeology of uh, the uh, Laddie Creek uh, archaeological site in the Bighorn Mountains in northern Wyoming. And uh, what, what I was trying to do in that one was to help the archaeologists figure out the environmental changes that had been occurring uh, during the time of human occupation, which, which there went back about seven or 8,000 years. Um, so always uh, I have worked on uh, trying to discern patterns of environmental and climate change from looking at the landscape, looking at geomorphology, looking at soils, uh, in glacial environments, in stream environments, etc. So uh, as a physical geographer, I've always been on the earth science side of geography. Uh, half the articles I've published in journals were in geology journals, and half the conferences that I've gone to over the years are in geology conferences. So I'm on the borderline between uh, geography and geology. Both disciplines sometimes claim soils and geomorphology in particular. And uh, so. Uh, when I saw back in the 1980s, when I was just starting out as a professor in, at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona, when I saw uh, the uh, this this issue coming down the train tracks like a huge train, um, I thought it was fine that you know the government was throwing extra money at at climate research. In fact, back in the 70s, perhaps. You, I don't know how old you are, but you might not recall. But but the the uh, big scare in the mid 70s was uh, there was a cooling trend, about a 30 year cooling trend, and therefore the press got a hold of that and said, "Look out, we're going into another ice age." Yes, I do and remember that could, actually. I remember that clearly because I don't like the heat, and I was quite looking forward to an ice age. <laughs> yeah. So so the fickle press, uh, uh, you know, had us all scared about that, or tried to get us all scared about that. And uh, and then within about five years, uh, when there uh, about 1977, it started warming up a bit, and pretty soon they just they almost didn't miss a beat. They just went into uh, trying to figure out how to use this climate change issue as a way to 
uh, galvanize political support for political agendas, which, of course, uh, ultimately have to do with our economy, because 85% of the energy that we get in the United States and worldwide comes from fossil fuels. And, of course, fossil fuels are carbon-based, and when you burn them, coal, uh, gas, and oil, when you burn them, uh, carbon dioxide is produced. So I remember my first climatology class, uh, gosh, it was probably mid-70s at Flagstaff at Northern Arizona University, and even then the issue of carbon dioxide was was out there, and we were taught kind of the standard storyline, which I now disbelieve, the standard storyline being that carbon dioxide, which is a trace gas, um, 380 parts per million or four, four molecules in 10,000, a very tiny percentage of the atmospheric gases. It is one of a number, about five or six, uh, what we call greenhouse gases. Water vapor is by far the most important greenhouse gas in the effect that it has. Uh, but uh, the, the notion was that CO2 would uh, trap uh, uh, terrestrial heat or a long uh, infrared radiation given off by the Earth and then re-radiate that, counter-radiate it back to the Earth, and you would affect, uh, um, disobey the, this, the, the uh, laws of thermodynamics. You would actually almost create new energy in, in the process, you know. And I, I think that there's, there's a great book out now, which uh, I've, I've interviewed Dr. Tim Ball in Canada, who's Canada's first Ph.D. in climatology, educated at London, um, and uh, he's written a book now called Slaying the Sky Dragon, Death of the Greenhouse Gas Theory. And I think the greenhouse gas theory is one of these things that got promoted uh, originally through ignorance, and then it was latched onto by uh, political interests, um, and then became a, is, all this has become a massive propaganda brainwashing uh, blitz, and uh, because it suits certain political objectives, which, in a nutshell, the United Nations would like to be the prototypical global government, and what better way to do it than to regulate all economic activity and tax all economic activity, which of course is based on the use of fossil fuels. And then if you really want to have control, and these Malthusian global elite people uh, don't really want to share the planet's resources with the other 7 billion people, they really want to uh, reduce the population. So. How would you do that? Well, you control food, you control water, you control all the, uh, and of course energy, and you control all the uh, essentials of life, um, and you regulate them. So pretty soon there's not only a carbon footprint, there's a nitrogen footprint, and there's a water footprint, and everybody's got to be very concerned about sustainability because if I eat this hamburger, that could wreck the chances of the next generation. I mean, all this is total nonsense. But this is the propaganda that our our children have been hearing in the public schools. Well, we'll come to many of these points uh, in greater detail, but uh, perhaps first of all, we should address the, the point that I made sort of in my introduction was that people questioning this uh, then get labeled with, I say, as deniers, but more as then people who are not concerned about the environment, that if you're questioning this theory, then that means that you necessarily drive one or more gas-guzzling vehicles that you want the right to, you know, have a jet ski and, uh, you know, fly around the world at the drop of a hat. 
And that's not the case. And what this ends up doing is it, it, the divisive nature of this, it pits genuinely concerned people against each other when actually they're, they're, they do want the same thing, which is a clean, healthy environment for, for everything living on the earth. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think if, if, uh, if there's an environmentalist, it's, it's me. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time uh, skiing, climbing, and, and hiking all over the beautiful American West and, indeed, mountain ranges all over the world. And I got into geography because I was concerned about the environment and I, and I liked being in nature, et cetera. But what has happened, Greg, is that the environmental movement has been co-opted. Uh, uh, they, they say green is the new red. And uh, the United Nations attempts to regulate uh, all human activity uh, just right out of the Soviet Union. Uh, and, and what the global elite would like is to impose, well, fascism for the rich and communism for everybody else. If communism is a great way to enslave people. And... Uh, this is what they want to do. They want to regulate and limit all human activity um, based on this, these so-called environmental concerns, which, which incidentally, um, we have the technology, the corporations and the military have technology that will clean up the environment. But uh, I think it suits their purposes to, you know, problem, reaction, solution, to create or to augment. The, the top polluter in the United States is the U.S. military by far. Uh, the U.S. government is the number one polluter. So the U.S. government could go a long way towards solving the problem if they just uh, addressed it. But it's not in the game plan of the global elite to, to have the corporations clean up their... Well, maybe, maybe that's happening a little bit. But uh, what I'm saying is that this is all now gone beyond the level of facts uh, to the level of ideology and propaganda and brainwashing. And I think, uh, I don't know how much you know about mind control, but I've been looking into it in the last year, and it's a very uh, uh, evil subject. Um, Free will may be at stake uh, in the future. But right now we have this incredible propaganda blitz. A lot of it's coming from Britain, by the way, England in particular, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of divisiveness about it, uh, but, you know, I taught climatology for years, and in the last several years, I started using books by climatologists who were very much of the opinion that I am, and uh, so I was the Lone Ranger at the university where I taught, which is California State University, Stanislav. Meanwhile, the biology department uh, was going to get on the gravy train of of grants and funds and whatnot, and they had a uh, uh, a brown bag lunch series every Friday or whatever on the topic of climate change. <laughs> now these are biologists, so they don't know anything about climate change, but they know that they can get on board if they skew their research in such a way that climate change is in the title of the of the project. So uh, they, being academic opportunists, like I'm afraid so many are forced to be. Uh, they were having this series on climate change. I was never invited. The guy who taught climatology, the guy who'd done the research in climatology, so it'd be like the geography department having a, you know, a, 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 a research forum or something like that on uh, genetics. You know, this is a topic which has jumped out of the normal academic constraints. We, we, I read an article recently, 700 American university presidents were signed on to a certain climate change initiative that they were going to promote such and such. We did a geography professor search the year before I left, 
and our dean told us we should hire this English guy who had done his research in climate modeling at the University of Texas. And because he's a computer guy, he doesn't know squat about the real world. All he knows is how to input data in computers. So this becomes the new virtual reality. So all of this is virtual reality. It has nothing to do with, see, I, I grew up out in the field. I mean, I was out there with a pick and shovel and, and uh, bringing samples back to the laboratory and, and, you know, got my hands real dirty and got my feet cold. And, and uh, this new generation is not connected. Uh, to the outside world, as far as I can tell, they they have a uh, uh, a different mo. They were taught differently. Um, uh, what they want to do is model reality, and then they start to believe that their models are reality. And they often are very well. All the models are wrong in terms of they've all been proven wrong. All of them predicted, as you said, it's been cooling since 1998 very slightly. All of them predicted warming. You have all these very, very high-tech climate models, which different organizations have put forward with supercomputers. And, you know, that's, okay, fun and games, you know. They're trying to figure out how the climate system works. And by the way, it's infinitely complex, and we haven't gotten there yet. It, we, we can't make a deterministic model of what the climate's going to do. We can't predict the weather for more than a week or 10 days at the most because weather is basically chaotic. And so, of course, climate is just average weather. So to think that we can predict long-term climate changes when we can't predict short-term changes in the weather is, is uh, I'm afraid to say it, is lunacy. So what we've done is, now there have been times in the past when science, different scientific fields have been co-opted by political agendas and corrupted. And this is what I believe has happened and is happening to the small field of climatology. Well, as well as people being excluded from discussions and debates, um, a lot of so-called debate that takes place in the mainstream, the mainstream media, uh, is, very, is very frustrating for um, lay people trying to get a handle on this because quite often there is no debate. There's a lot of arguing, a lot of condemnation, name-calling, mudslinging. And at the end of the day, a lot of the basic questions about this are actually left unanswered. If you listen to a discussion on climate change, on you know, say for example on the BBC, you get one person uh, flatly denying that um, that you know a significant proportion of climate change is due to human activity. You'll get another person on the other side of the coin who puts completely the opposite side of the um, uh, opinion. They both have data apparently to back up what they're saying. And at the end, and after a bit more squabbling, it's left hanging in the air. So I think you know, a lot of people are looking for the answers. They do want to know what the truth is, but they're getting conflicting messages coming from everyone. It's not helped by the fact that it's such an, um, an emotional thing that people can't just look at the, the, the hard facts and try and discern one from the other. Well, I, you're absolutely right, Greg, and I'm, in, I'm enjoying this discussion because you are right on. Um, you know, I'm mean, okay, let me just give you a few basics. One of the books that I used recently in my class is a book by an earth scientist, a geologist from Australia named Ian Plymer. It's called Heaven and Earth, Global Warming, the Missing Science. And it's a, you know, I did it for a senior level course. It's, it's a graduate level book. I mean, there's an enormous amount of information in there. But, but the bottom line is the Earth's four and a half billion years old, according to a lot of earth scientists. 80% of the time, at least... During that time, the climate was warmer, significantly warmer than it is now, maybe 8, 10 degrees centigrade. No tipping points were reached. In fact, during warmer climates, historically, geologically, and culturally, uh, species thrive. Uh, 
they do better. The average temperature of the Earth is about uh, oh, uh, 15 degrees, uh, 13 to 15 degrees centigrade. We can't even really agree on that. It's well below the optimal, which for humans is about 20. The uh, if we look at Earth's history, and we even look at the at the uh, human history, we see that during periods of warmth, let's take the Viking expansion period of around a thousand years ago. Um, uh, you know, all over Europe, there was uh, longer lifespans, uh, uh, longer growing seasons, uh, greater crop yields, greater wealth, uh, culture uh, thrives. Now, during the Little Ice Age, which started around 1300, 1400 AD, uh, conditions were reversed, and we went towards cooling, and just the opposite occurred. Uh, uh, growing seasons were shorter, lifespans were shorter, uh, there was less wealth, there was plagues and things like that, you know. Uh, bad times. Cooling is what is, is dangerous. And I personally agree with you that we're going into a cooling phase. Now, here we are being told that we're warming, and we're not preparing logically for cooling, which is what we need to be doing. So, again, I, I think we need to look very hard at this cadre, this cabal that runs the world for their benefit, and that means that they run the different nation states and get us to fight against each other. Um, but they, they, uh, they, they don't want to share. They, they've, the United Nations has lots of documents saying we have too many people and we need to reduce the numbers, blah, blah, blah. And Britain, the, the BBC, is the propaganda arm of the British government. And English government is, I think, and I've done a lot of research on this, the main controlling factor in the UN and the prototypical global government. So you are sitting there ground zero of the propaganda factory. The theory of man-made uh, climate change, you know, being as significant as it is, is actually a fraud. I was asking myself, well, then why would they not construct this based on what's actually happening in the real world? Because they now have a problem with the cooling. But then is it the case that they started out with this when warming was happening? Um, hoping to move forward with the agenda a little bit faster. But now that cooling's here, they're having to do absurd things like uh, say that global warming is uh, due to global cooling to make the policy and the politics fit whatever the situation actually is, even if, it, uh, if it's an absurdity. Yeah, well, you know, I think the reality is, and, and again, climatology is a fairly young science, and uh, I think Earth scientists have a, uh, probably the, a better handle on climate change over longer time spans than anybody else because they are studying longer time spans and they're looking at environmental changes and they're seeing what's happened. Uh, we have cycles of climate change. Like right now, uh, we are about two to three million years into a ice age. Uh, and it's, uh, we, uh, we, call the, uh, we call this uh, period the Quaternary Period or the Pleistocene Epoch. We're actually out of the Pleistocene and into the Holocene now, uh, the last 10,000 years. The Holocene uh, is a period of, of relative climate stability and warmth. It's called climatic optimum. It's, a, it's a optimal conditions for life. So human culture has thrived under a stable, warm climate. Good for agriculture, and of course this completely overlaps with the age of agriculture, which also started about that same time, about 10,000 years ago. So uh, climate, you know, there used to be a whole school of thought called climate determinism, that, that uh, 
uh, different climates of the world will determine how the cultures are, how the people are, what you know, what the races looked like, and everything. And they probably went a little overboard with that. But uh, in fact, climate is what we might call an independent variable, and everything else is dependent on that. Like the uh, the the vegetation shifts when climate changes. Climate changes naturally all the time, and yet all of the computer models assume, and this is. This is programmed into the computer models, the assumption that climate, change, climate is stable. Well, any earth scientist who got out of you know, first or second year courses knows that that is wrong. And so you know, garbage in, garbage out. They say in the computer world, you put in bad assumptions, you're going to come to bad conclusions. And that's why every one of the models is wrong. They assume, number one, stable climate. Uh, without any, without human influence. Number two, they assume that CO2 is the most important climate driver, and uh, that's completely erroneous. As you say, the oceans and the sun have a much greater role. Uh, so you've got the two fundamental assumptions are erroneous, and of course your conclusions are erroneous, and they all predict, you know, something like. Uh, you know, one to two degrees Fahrenheit, or excuse me, uh, one degree centigrade to maybe uh, oh five or six degrees centigrade warming by the end of this century. Well, all that's going to be wrong, I, I'm sure. Just like the, <laughs> I can't be absolutely sure, but but the trend is towards cooling. And so, if you really want to understand climate, you start to look at these cycles. Okay, what is the what is the uh, periodicity of the cycle? What's the frequency of the cycle, and what's the magnitude of climate change in the past? And if you want to predict the future, you should understand the past. And to start out with the assumption that uh, the Earth's climate is stable, and then humans came along and started burning fossil fuels, that's the most ludicrous, ignorant, uh, pathetic hypothesis that any scientist could have ever come up with. It is. It, and, of course, to sell that to the public requires just that. It requires selling. And let me just read you this. This comes from our, our friend, uh, Professor Robert M. Carter's book, Climate, the Counter Consensus. He's from Australia, and he's done his work on deep sea cores. And this is deep sea core work has been going on for a good 50 years, and what they find is climate cycles. You know, about 20 major glacial interglacial fluctuations in the last two million years, okay? Um, like I say, we are now in an interglacial called the Holocene. We're pro we could well be on a, a downturn towards a cooler sliding back into a glacial, but that, of course, is debatable. But, it, but my point is, here's, a, here's a Chapter 8, Communicating the Story. He's talking about the propaganda. And this is coming from uh, the Institute for Policy Research in London. The Institute for Policy Research is an outgrowth of the Tavistock Institute for Human Relations, which I've come to realize is the number one brainwashing center for the world and has been since World War I. Okay, this is a, a, a subcontractor, subcontractor for the Institute for Public Policy Research in London. It says, um, the task of climate change agencies is not to persuade by rational argument. Instead, we need to work in a more shrewd and contemporary way, using subtle techniques of engagement. The quote, facts, unquote, need not be treated as being so, uh, no, excuse me, the facts need to be treated as being so taken for granted that they need not be spoken. Ultimately, positive climate behaviors, 
need to be approached in the same way as marketeers approach acts of buying and consuming. It amounts to treating climate-friendly activity as a brand that can be sold. This is, we believe, the route to mass behavior change. Okay, that's coming from G. Ariut and N. Signet, 2006. But again, subcontracting for the Institute for Public Policy Research, which is a spinoff of the Tavistock Institute. We're talking total marketing, uh, PR, sales, brainwashing of the public. So of course people are confused. And that's the point, is to confuse people enough to get and to get people enough riled up emotionally to make this an ideological issue as it is. I've I've got friendships that are on uh you know on the <laughs> uh you know just not doing very well. Some of my best friends are in the field of science and uh, they profit from the 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 bucks that the governments have been throwing at this at this ludicrous uh, hypothesis which wouldn't stand the test of an 8th grade science fair. And so they've become ideologically uh, uh, attuned to the idea that fossil fuels are bad, we've got to get rid of them, and and because it's destroying the environment, quote unquote. Well, bullshit. I mean, this is just the biggest nonsense I've ever heard in my life. Um, and I am a science professor, and I can just tell you that this is this is complete poppycock, and it's coming from Britain. I, fu- I fully expect to. Um to get emails saying, you know, how dare you give time to this charlatan or whatever <laughs> once this is broadcast. Uh, let me give you this a personal note here, Greg. Mm-hmm. Okay, my father worked with the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, put in a whole career, he's still alive, but uh, he's, and, and he loves his work, and that's perhaps why I went into something similar, very similar, as it turned out. Um, and he was mapping the quaternary glacial geology of Alaska all through my childhood. He was mapping and dating the sequence of glacial advances and retreats. Okay, my father is not a normal guy. He's brilliant. He's a, he's you know could go down as a great scientist, um, but of course takes time to weed through all the different voices. So that will be determined in the future. But he's always been a cycles guy. And when I was growing up, he'd he'd stay up till two o'clock at three o'clock at night every night. Uh, doing these, you know, incredible detailed graphs. You know, he would go through all the different civilizations and find out when they, you know, when they crashed and when they, uh, when they thrived. And he'd and he'd put that up against his climate model, which which had to do with mainly Earth's uh, orbital variations around the sun for the long-term cycles, and the and the moon's orbit around the Earth for the shorter-term, higher-frequency cycles. And then, of course, it gets into sunspot cycles and things like that. So anyway, he's got cycles and cycles and cycles. And he's been doing this since the 50s and 60s. He was hounded out of the U.S. Geological Survey because that was not the politically correct uh, conclusion back in the 80s, about 84. About the same time, I was hounded out of Northern Arizona University. Uh, And uh, I personally believe that the intelligence agencies like the CIA are all over this topic because they have had a long-term plan to change uh, mass behavior change uh, through this scare issue. And if you have, uh, okay, the CIA has been doing for years a thing called influence mapping. You want the right people in the right positions. You want the right voices of authority to say the right thing, which then supports whatever 
you know, Big Brother 1984 uh, kind of uh, agenda is is uh, that the party uh, advocates at the moment. Well, uh, my, my dad had done a hell of a lot of work, and interestingly enough, you know, it turned me on, and I got interested in it myself. Even as a graduate student, I got interested in the old issue of climate change. So, you know, the two of us are not your average scientist. You know, the average biologist knows nothing about climate change. We know a hell of a lot, and I've got a huge library of books, and I've got a huge library of reprints, and, you know, it's all hard copy because I'm afraid one of these days the computers might just take over and we'll lose all the real solid stuff. But anyway, so... Uh, 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 there's a there's a real political and economic aspect to science and which scientists get the microphone. Now, I was partly, I'll admit, probably due to my association with my father, I was invited into a group called the American Quaternary Association as treasurer when I was a pretty young professor. So I was hanging out with the top scientists in the field, and this is multidisciplinary. Quaternary, again, is the last two or three million years of Earth history, which is synonymous with the Ice Ages. So these are palynologists and, and deep-sea core people and archaeologists and geologists and soils people and geographers, all disciplines looking at the issues of climate change. So I was sitting there kind of at ground zero of the whole thing. Well, I, like I said, I watched the whole thing come down. I would go to the meetings every couple of years. In the mid-'80s, uh, the uh, biannual uh, um, meeting of AMQA, the American Quaternary Association, was in Boulder, Colorado. And even in 1986, uh, or was it 88? <laughs> My memory starting to fail a little bit here. I think it was 86 in, in uh, Boulder. The, the, the thing was taken over by computer people. Um, and then the 88 conference, which was back in Flagstaff, where I had started my career, uh, the keynote address was by a guy named Stephen Schneider, who is a biologist who's now recently died, who is an uh, ideologue pushing the global warming agenda. He knew nothing about climate change, but he was brought on by the organizers of that conference to be the keynote speaker. Why? Because... Again, influence mapping. Get the right people in there saying the right thing. And say it over and over and over and over. The bigger the lie, the more easy for the people to believe it, according to Hitler and Goebbels. And that's what this is. This is a huge lie. This is the biggest lie. Uh, there's others, but uh, it's one of the biggest ones out there. And well, I, I'm not pulling my punches anymore. I'm retired. I just call it like I see it now. But I see uh, they're vulnerable because these people write a lot, and I read a lot. And uh, so I can identify who's done what when, and I can trace the history of this propaganda blitz back to its source. And, uh, and uh, so that's what's, what's interesting me now in my retirement uh, is, uh, is this whole issue of propaganda mind control and how science gets co-opted uh, by politics. So this is what's being used then basically to gloss over problems with the theory of man-made climate change when they arise. And it's, even though uh, there, this issue of scientific fraud has come up repeatedly and it almost seems to be coming up in, 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 with increasing frequency, it's all sort of made to go away within a relatively short space of time. Even the controversy uh, regarding the emails from the University of uh, East Anglia, uh, that was a huge thing at the time here all over the media and it really you know it was the death knell for the 
the man-made global warming camp. But then that nobody's talking about that now. It's sort of just gone away. It's still there, of course. You can still that you know that the cat's out of the bag. But uh, you know, it's uh, no one's talking about it in, in the mainstream. Okay, uh, Climate Gate. You mentioned 2009, the uh, Stephen Jones uh, Climate Research Unit at. Uh, University of East Anglia. You know, this was a huge scandal. Uh, emails were hacked and exposed that showed that the team, it's a relatively small team, including, by the way, a guy named Tom Wigley, also from Britain, who's head of the National Center for Atmospheric Research here. I mean, this thing has global legs, but, uh, and, and it's very small cadre. Uh, it showed, you know, well, we've got to, we've got to protect our, our position here. We've got to take out that scientist. We've got to make sure that our stuff gets published in the journals and got to keep our people in the heads of the journals and all this stuff. These guys are making a lot of money from federal government contracts, which ultimately trace back to those governments' commitments to the UN. And, uh, um, yeah, we had Climate Gate in 2009. As it turned out, I was teaching a climatology class when that happened, and I had two students in that class who I think, and you know, you could say conspiracy theory and blah, blah, blah. I think these students were just, you know, almost put there to just derail my class because that's what they did. Um, you know, they just, uh, the most rude, two women, uh, women I've ever seen, and uh, uh, they made the class very unpleasant, and, and uh, anyway, during during that uh, during that class, as it turned out, ClimateGate happened, and my students were able to see that maybe their professor knew something, you know. Uh, anyway, after ClimateGate was followed up by NASAGate, and then KiwiGate, and AussieGate, and all of these federal weather reporting stations were found to be altering the weather records at the early part of the 20th century to depress the temperatures and to change it at the end of the 20th century to increase the temperatures, thus giving a slight warming trend of about one degree Fahrenheit or, you know, at the most one degree centigrade, which is, which is pretty tiny when you look at the amount of warming and cooling that happens naturally, but the average person doesn't know that. Um, so, yeah, what we see is at least four governments, uh, again, England, United States, uh, uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, caught uh, fabricating and changing scientific data. Okay, now this, these are all taxpayer-funded uh, uh, to a large extent, especially in the United States. You know, uh, so the average person should get upset and say, well, you know, we're supporting phony science. We're supporting uh, a political agenda. What is that political agenda? What do these people want to accomplish by fooling us? You see, this is this is what you know. This is where I've been going for the last several years, asking these questions. And and most people are reluctant. Most scientists, particularly, are reluctant to ask these questions because that gets very uncomfortable for a scientist. Uh, he wants to just keep his keep his focus narrow and keep the money coming in. You know, if as we're always being told, the science is settled, then. What on earth are billions in research grants being dished out for? I mean, I know that science is an ongoing process. It doesn't just stop. But if the science in this regard is settled, why, why spend billions? What are they actually researching? Well, that's a very good question, Greg. Um, you know, I've been, like I say, reading a lot about mind control. During the 80s in this country, there was a heck of a lot of money devoted to Star Wars. This Ronald Reagan said, oh, if we could just put up a little protective shield so that the missiles 
from Russia wouldn't hit us, you know, then we'd all be safe. Well, a lot of that research uh, got into uh, space weaponry, got into directed energy weapons, uh, got into mind control, tremendous number of highly secret military operations, including weather control. The, we have documents, lots of documents from the military. One 1996 paper is called Weather as a Force Multiplier, uh, Owning the Weather in 2020. Okay, so <laughs> this, this paper lays it out. You can get it online. You can download it. You can see their plans, and they, they want to be able to have climate uh, uh, modification, weather modification all around the world because this is environmental warfare and weather warfare is an extremely efficient way, manner of covert war. You can direct a hurricane to an enemy shoreline. You can create a lot of damage. If you can create a drought in your, the enemy's country or a flood, uh, uh, this is called geoengineering. Well, I maintain that a tremendous amount of the research that's actually been done in, in uh, supposedly global warming as well as Star Wars and other you know, black budget uh, military uh, projects, tremendous of this is, the amount of this is towards geoengineering. And uh, again, that's synonymous more or less with environmental warfare and weather warfare. And this subject goes right back to World War II. And again, the English were the first ones. During World War II, I think it was 43, uh, British uh, Royal Air Force dropped uh, chaff uh, into the sky. And the chaff is, uh, I think it's fiberglass coated aluminum strips of about a quarter of an inch. And because of the length of the strips, they completely jammed the radar uh, capabilities of the Germans so that the Germans could not see the Royal Air Force flying overhead. So they were able to bomb the cities with, without any German defense. Well, that's the first, one of the first uses of geoengineering. Others have been you know, making it rain. And that goes back even before that. Uh, Operation Cumulus in 1953, the Royal Air Force, and this is again secret, uh, dropped a heck of a lot of uh, silver iodide or something else to form uh, clouds and rain uh, over a small town of Devon in western England, apparently causing just humongous floods and killed, you know, something like 30 people and did enormous property damage. That was uh, that was uh, it, it, that was all secret. And so, of course, that's another interesting aspect. Now that I'm retired, I get to study how many times governments use their own populations for these kinds of experiments, you know. And uh, they do it all the time. And they have done for the last 100 years almost. Uh, so, yeah, geoengineering is the, is the subtext, I believe, uh, as well as... See, Plan A, they even have this in the documents right now. There's, there's documents coming out of uh, uh, the House of Commons and in cooperation with the House of Representatives in the United States. This is in 2010. There's something, five or six documents saying, hey, listen, we have to start regulating geoengineering. <laughs> well, they've been doing it for the last 60 years. But now they're saying we're going to have to start regulating it. And... Uh, 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 so they admit to the reality of these things long after the military used and developed them. Um, so I think that uh, even in these documents, what it, it, and even in documents going back for 20 years, we see in the kind of the bureaucraties 
uh, okay, we got a problem. The problem is the Earth's warming due to human use of fossil fuels and carbon dioxide. Well, that's bogus, but that's set up as the problem. And then what are the solutions? Plan A, Kyoto Protocol type phase out of use of fossil fuels. Phase two of Kyoto Protocol would reduce the amount of carbon dioxide emitted and fossil fuels burned uh, by 80% by 2050, which means that would throw the industrial world back into a pre-industrial state, which would mean that the agriculture system would crash and lots of people would starve, among other things. Okay, that's plan A, and that's what they've been pushing real hard. But their plan B, even back in documents 20 years ago, is geoengineering. We're going to have to engineer the climate. We're going to have to reduce the amount of incoming solar radiation, called solar radiation management. This is in many, many, many scientific papers, many, 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 many government documents. This was all laid out in a uh, National Academy Press book, 1991, by the uh, you know, top scientists in the United States, called Policy Implications of Greenhouse Warming. Okay, 1991. The ideology was established. Uh, the bogus science was already determined. The co-opted real science to serve a bogus science agenda was determined. And the policy implications of Plan A and Plan B were laid out in, in this document. I've got it. It's about a thousand pages. It says, Policy Implications of Greenhouse Warming. Subtitle is Mitigation, Adaptation, and the Science Base. So when they talk about mitigation, they're talking about geoengineering. Well, geoengineering they've been doing for 60 years anyway. But that they don't tell you. And uh, so uh, I, I think maybe we should talk about geoengineering in a future um, uh, interview. Greg. Absolutely, we will, we, will, we will do that. I mean, how does the scenario in Plan A then, which is essentially, you call it by any other name, deindustrialization and depopulation, how does that nexus with um, the, the, the notion of peak oil and the fact that uh, it may take a couple of hundred years, but actually our ability to use fossil fuels may actually be coming to an end. So how do, how do they nexus together, do you think? Very good question. Um, yeah, uh, peak oil. Uh, of course, this has been all over the press and the alternative press. Uh, it's been really pushed, I think, by the intelligence agencies like the CIA. It's very difficult because the oil companies don't really want to share with the world what their reserves are. It's very difficult. I would show my students, I had taught a course called Human Ecology, which is basic environmental issues, man-environment man, uh, uh, relationships. And I, you know, over the years I would hear different viewpoints about peak oil, some saying that, you know, we've, we've burned about a trillion barrels of oil already, you know, in the last 100, 125 years, and that there's about that many left. Uh, about another trillion barrels, which means that we're coming to the peak of the availability of cheap oil and that therefore you have this bell curve, production goes up to a peak and then comes back down. And of course, on the downward side of peak oil, you'd have you know, social cataclysm and wars and everybody fighting for the remaining oil, etc. Well, uh, you know, and then, okay, when is peak oil? You read different books and you hear different people and you get different estimates. Top oil people will say, you know, oh, we hit it in 20, 2005 or we're going to hit it in 2030, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. 
uh, or others saying, we have so much oil. You know, we've got another thousand years if you look at all the oil in, say, the Gulf of Mexico. Or natural gas, which now is thought to be at the very bottom of the Gulf of Mexico in a semi-frozen state. So um, this is the $64 million question. And I cannot give you a, you know, uh, uh, a definitive or confident answer. Uh, I have the gut level feeling that there is quite a bit more oil and that this peak oil thing is being used as a way to scare us. Um, as they use so many things. I mean, we just, you know, in the United States, we're, we're threatened with the fiscal cliff again, you know, this time of year. And, of course, the Mayan calendar ended, you know, December 12th, and everybody's ready for the end of the world. So there's this constant terrorizing, fear-mongering with this issue and that issue. You know, you go to college and you get scared, you know. Um, a lot of this stuff is bullshit, you know, let's face it. And I think peak oil could be in that category. And I'm I'm afraid to say I don't know for sure. Yeah, well, I just thought perhaps that it would, uh, in your plan A, that you set out that those two things would fit together rather well in the sense that it's difficult to go to people and say, you know, set out the peak oil scenario and say, this is what it's going to mean for your life and basically say, well, this is going to result in depopulation and deindustrialization. But rather, if you're able to do it, having the climate as an imperative, then it's almost like, well, this isn't our opinion. This isn't our plan as such. You know, we have to do this because of what's happening in nature. Again, that's an excellent, that's an excellent point. And, you know, presumably the intelligence uh, agencies, CIA, MI6, MI5, etc., they do are privy to information, you know, and, uh, and they would perhaps know uh, something that, uh, you know, you and I are not privy to. Uh, so, again, there's a big question mark in my mind. I hear stories of enormous uh, oil um, uh, reserves up in the north slope of Alaska and whatnot. I don't know. Um, then you hear stories that Saudi Arabia's uh, already peaked, and if Saudi Arabia has peaked, we get 20, almost 25 percent of our world's oil from Saudi Arabia. Uh, then, it, and and uh, if if they've peaked, then the world's peaked. You know, says says Matt Simmons of this and this consulting company that works for oil companies. You know, who's now dead, by the way. Oh, yeah. So who knows what. Uh, what all skullduggery and is going on there? I can tell you this: Iraq has 11% of the proven reserves, and it's not being pumped out very rapidly. So it's like money in the bank for the American oil companies, which have seized uh, that country. Um, so yeah, geopolitics, petropolitics. Uh, this is really uh, a fundamental issue because again, 85% of the economy and the energy. From, for the uh, for the entire world comes from fossil fuels. Forty percent of the fossil fuels are oil, so it's the biggest single contributor. Now, in terms of natural gas, uh, how much is left? <laughs> you know, who knows? About the same. You know, could be a lot, could be a little. But coal, we got a lot of, especially in the United States. So, you know, a few hundred years. And of course, Hitler gasified coal uh, during World War II using Rockefeller patents. By the way, Rockefellers and the Bushes set up Hitler to fight World War II. So, uh, you know, all this is a big puppet show in terms of geopolitics and wars and stuff. These guys are, you know, playing all sides against each other, pitting them against each other. Um, I've, I've come to think and realize. Um, so, uh, 
but at the center of it is energy. Now, of course, then there's the whole figure of Nikola Tesla, uh, directed energy, genius, around 1900, supposedly, uh, you know, who was going to build uh, his Tesla coil, his magnifying transmitter that could transmit free energy to everywhere in the world. And he was being funded by J.P. Morgan, the Rothschild uh, agent, who said, hey, if it's free, where can I put a meter on it? And so J.P. Morgan stopped the funding. So it could be that we never really needed to go into a fossil fuel economy, but that the Rockefellers and the powers that be and the Rothschilds wanted to because it gave them more control. Can you imagine what the global elite would think about free energy in the hands of the masses? Then you'd no longer have uh, uh, the elite with all the power and the money. Uh, that would change everything. So um, the idea, number one, that we're running out of fossil fuels and that only uh, wind and solar is going to save us. Well, th those, I think, are both perhaps myths. I mean, wind and solar are the perpetual 10% solution. They don't, they don't, you know, you can't run a steel plant on wind and solar because the sun doesn't shine all the time and the wind doesn't blow all the time. So they're niche technologies. Go talk to an engineer and he'll tell you about reality. And the reality is that, again, 85% of our energy comes from fossil fuels and that they are key to what we consider industrial civilization. So uh, we, we better look at these energy issues carefully and look through some of the propaganda. Yeah, and I think it's important just to reiterate at this point that if one is questioning what's going on in, you know, the, this, in the world with regard to climate change, global warming, and man's role in it, this does not mean that you necessarily think that burning fossil fuels is a wonderful thing to do. Personally, I think they're all really pretty dirty. It's allowed us to build the civilization that we have now you know, in the West and industrialized countries. I don't see how it can continue indefinitely. I think that's impossible. We're going to have to find some other way of doing this or make major changes. So it's just that a lot of people in the climate change debate are always trying to equate people who are questioning the official theory and trying to make them into like people who are in hock to big oil or whatever. Yeah, a lot of this, you know, the environmental movement comes out of an institution, another Tavistock spinoff called the Club of Rome, which has nothing to do with the Catholic Church. But, but one of the first things they did was come out with a, a book called Limits to Growth back about 1972. And this was about when I was getting going in grad school. So I remember that book. And uh, MIT professors, uh, Donella Mello, Meadows and various others, made a bunch of computer models and predicted when we'd run out of various essential minerals. All of the models turned out to be wrong. Um, they all said we were going to run out before we did. Uh, but this kind of cemented this style of academic research into, it kind of legitimized it. And of course, all the global warming modeling uh, uses kind of the same uh, prototypical uh, assumptions, et cetera. Use, and, and, and they all come up with, again, the dire catastrophic uh, conclusions that serve a political agenda, which is, again, mass behavior change, which we heard from the Institute for Policy Research statement that I gave you. Um, they want to change the industrial world. They want to, like you say, depopulate it and deindustrialize it. Uh, they want to destroy the American middle class, for instance. There's been a huge attempt to do that. Um, so I think we're kind of struggling to maintain Western civilization as we've, as we've come to 
you know, it's not perfect. Yes, there's local pollution, I think, you know, but look at how much cleaner the air in L.A. is now that, you know, that they've got, that they've, you know, have uh, laws requiring smog devices and catalytic converters for automobiles. It's it's much cleaner than it was back in the 70s. I mean, uh, we've made a lot of environmental progress. We can make a lot more um, without giving up uh, use of fossil fuels. So, uh, we have to look at uh, fossil fuel use realistically and say, well, gee, it's like we all have the benefit of 300 energy slaves. We can go down the road at 70 miles an hour, you know, where emperors couldn't do that in the past, you know. They'd get, mm. you know, 10 strong guys and they'd go down the road, you know, about two miles an hour, you know. So, uh, um, yeah, I mean, these are big issues, and I don't claim to have all the answers, but I do... If, if there's anything I'm sure of, I tell you this, Greg. If there's anything I'm sure of is that global warming is nonsense. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I look at my career and what I what I've learned. It's that this this scientific push is a hoax, and and I think it gives us an opportunity to look at the powers that be, the Club of Rome and Tavistock and the brainwashing institutions, uh, and 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 see who they are and and what they are, and and see what they're trying to accomplish. You know. Uh, if you can pull the wool over people's eyes on a massive scale like this, um, then you can implement whatever agenda you want. So, again, this, this, all this for me comes back down to the issue of, of propaganda and mind control, and that's a whole fascinating topic, too. Even though we're in a, a cooling phase now, when especially when you zoom back out and look at the climate of the Earth over uh, millennia, Extreme weather events are now commonly cited as the main evidence of climate change, which, of course, is being blamed on us. Um, so perhaps you could say something about that, because, I mean, are we experiencing more extreme weather events or is it just being reported differently? Or is it because the causes of these events have changed from natural to man-made? Another good question. Um, we are not experiencing more extreme weather events. Uh, there's various people that have studied, you know, hurricane frequencies and things like that, and, and we are not as frequent as we were at the earlier part of the 20th century, for instance. But I did an interview, two interviews, one with Red Ice interview in Sweden and one with a woman named Deanna Spingola here in Chicago in the United States, and I made the point that uh, I think it's quite possible that the, uh, that the huge hurricane that came very late in the season and slammed into New York City this fall uh, was uh, directed by some agency entity. Don't know if it's in the United States or elsewhere. But in other words, this could be an example of environmental warfare. And 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 uh, and if we look at the do the documents uh, coming out of again Tavistock. Sorry to be hard on you Brits, because I actually like the Brits, but I don't like the British government much. <laughs> uh, but uh, if we look at the documents from Tavistock, they talk about how to you know cause cyclical collapse in the United States. They want to bring the United States back into its colonial status, and this is clear in their documents. And, uh, you know, so you can look at all the economic shenanigans and you can look now at some of these extreme environmental events like uh, uh, Hurricane Katrina, I think, was guided. And the response to Hurricane Katrina was intentionally terrible. Uh, we saw essentially that same sort of thing now recently in, in New York. Um, I think we saw it at Joplin, Missouri. I, was at, I went to uh, New Orleans and looked at the damage in the lower Ninth Ward. It was very complete. I mean, was, all the houses were wiped out. Likewise, in Joplin, Missouri, 
two tornadoes supposedly came together during this uh, spate of tornadoes and uh, went straight south to north, uh, I believe, maybe it was north-south, but it went just south-north for 14 miles right through Joplin, Missouri, on the ground, and took out four city blocks a mile wide. One mile wide, 14 miles long. Tornadoes do not behave like this in nature. What they do is they, they loop around like crazy. They bounce up and down off the ground. Um, you'll get a once in a long, long while, you'll get one that, you know, lasts for a couple hundred miles, you know, like back, you know, in the 30s or whatever. But uh, this this tornado is, I think, a very good candidate for, for weather warfare applied against the domestic population of the United States. I think the governments have got the technology to uh, to do covert warfare against the domestic population. And I think they're doing it. And, of course, not only in this country, but other countries like Fukushima, that uh, earthquake there could well be uh, the kind of a disciplinary measure against uh, the Japanese government for whatever economic policies it didn't pursue. Likewise, in Banda Aceh in Indonesia. I mean, this is, is sometimes, there's a book by Naomi Klein called The uh, Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. The idea is that you wipe out an area and then you get your your friends to go and rebuild it and make all the money like we did with Iraq we destroyed Iraq and now we've let Bechtel and Halliburton rebuild it and make all the money and just happens to be a lot of money available with the oil so and this is the really really ugly side of uh, capitalism and the ruling elite that they uh, that they destroy look go back to South Africa in the Boer War I mean this was the first example and again it came out of the roundtable groups in England let's go destroy a country that's mineral rich and then we'll get our friends to to uh, take possession of the gold and the diamonds and whatever else is valuable there. And that's exactly what happened there. So we see this going on through history. And now it can be done covertly with these technologies. We'll have you back on at some point, Eric, and we'll definitely get into all that in detail. Uh, Regarding the sun, actually, its role in climate change, a few months ago I had geologist uh, Robert Schock on. And in terms of, uh, we're talking about his uh, current book, which is Forgotten Civilization, and he talks at great length about the fact that the climate is, is anything but, but stable at the moment and never actually has been. It goes through periods of uh, apparent stability, but if you, again, as I said earlier, if you zoom out and look over millennia and indeed, you know, millions of years, it's anything but stable overall. And uh, if you want to learn about the future, we do well to look at the past. And one of the things he dwells on is the enormous role that the sun has in affecting not just the temperature here on Earth, but the climate generally. Now, I don't know if this is too simplistic, but if you'd asked me when I was a child, because I was interested in geography, you know, what what affects the temperature of the Earth mostly, I'd have said, well, it's the sun, isn't it? And I worked this out at a young age because I noticed, pardon me for this, that it was actually cooler when the sun went in at night. And then I got up in the morning and the sun came up and it was warmer. So my childish brain concluded that the sun was the, the thing that affected the temperature here on Earth the most. I mean, is, is that a childish, simplistic way of looking at it? No, that's absolutely correct, of course, you know. And, uh, of course, uh, all cultures have understood this and many have worshipped the sun. And, you know, we could talk about that for a long time. Uh, but uh, since you mentioned this other geologist and his book, let me just mention on, on the interview that I have a website uh, www.naturalclimatechange.us and if they're interested in my kind of uh, overall view on this topic, I've right up at the upper left I've got a, 
uh, something like an 80-page paper, maybe it's 60 pages, single-spaced. It's called Open Letter to Policymakers, Colleagues, Students, and Citizens. And then the title of it is Disproofs of the Hypothesis of AGW, Anthropogenic Global Warming, and proofs that AGW is a fraud. So I would refer people to that, you know, rather than just saying, you know, I's crazy or whatever. Uh, go, you know, if you if you want to go and read uh, where I'm coming from, I've got it there, and there's a lot of other stuff on that website. There is also a PowerPoint on geoengineering, which we'll be talking about later. But but going back to your question about the sun, of course, the sun is our energy source. It drives the entire biosphere. It's the energy for all life. It's the energy for the climate system. 99.9% of the energy for the climate system comes from the sun. Now, when I w took my first class, I think it was 75 or something in climatology, we were taught that the uh, the solar output was constant. They call it the solar constant, you know, two Langley's uh, uh, at the upper atmosphere, you know, which is... Uh, you know, calories per square centimeter per minute or something like that. Well, that was the state-of-the-art understanding. Now they've done more uh, detailed measurements and found out that the solar output changes. Indeed, the sun is a typical average uh, variable star. And uh, yes, it has its solar flares and it has its... Uh, you know, magnetic storms and electromagnetic pulses and all kinds of things. But bottom line, it uh, it's a very dynamic beast, and it changes over time. In fact, it's grown since uh, the early solar system uh, about 30 percent, uh, and uh, it's it's about five billion years old, and it has another five billion years to burn out uh, in terms of you know. So it, it, there is no real. Uh, environmental destruction coming down for life on Earth for another good billion years as it gets hotter. But uh, so uh, and then you start to look at uh, what's the role of these climate cycles, the 11-year sunspot cycle, the 22-year cycle, the 90-year sun cycle, the 270-year. There's all these different cycles that we're starting to perceive now in, in the sun's behavior. So you know, I, I mentioned the story about my learning about the solar constant in 1976 to illustrate that, you know, we still have a lot to learn about how the climate system operates. And you're absolutely right. The sun is the most important uh, single factor. The second probably is the oceans because, you know, 70%, 71% of the Earth is covered with ocean, you know, average depth of 20,000 feet, and they are tremendous uh, uh heat storage areas. So the, the solar uh, energy is stored and transferred with all the ocean currents, etc., around the planet in the oceans. The atmosphere, of course, much less dense and uh, holds much, much, much less heat than the world's oceans. So if you want to get two factors that, that uh, you know, have the biggest single effect on, say, temperatures, um, that would be the two, the sun and the oceans. And, uh, and, and, and the whole notion of a global average temperature, according to some physicists and scientists, is, is preposterous. I mean, it's like looking in a phone book and trying to get the average phone number. I mean, the Earth is it's spinning around. It's got two hemispheres, one is winter in one and summer in the other. It's always cooling and warming everywhere at once. And to measure and think you can even get an average temperature from the Earth 
at any one instant, and let alone track the changes in that over a century, that's a gigantic leap of faith, um, and probably not warranted by the, the relatively spotty instrumental coverage we have of the Earth's uh, surface. Uh, we're getting better. Now we have the Argo system with 3,000 buoys in the oceans, uh, which, which go up and down about 1,000 meters, uh, and then beam the temperature results up to satellites. And that's been in place since 2003, and shows that since 2003, the Earth's oceans have been cooling very slightly. So we're not talking radical cooling, but we're talking cooling. So in the face of all this propaganda, the actual data contradicts it. Well, I think that, as I say, what we were talking earlier about uh, learning from the past to see what might happen in future, and I think that if we do that with regards to long-term uh, climate change on Earth, I think we can, we can expect to see much higher temperatures in the future, maybe quite far in the future, and we can also expect to see much lower temperatures. So any given snapshot of the climate at any point in time is never going to give us the whole picture. Absolutely true. And whether the Earth is warming or cooling determines is based on what slice of time you're looking at. If you're going to measure between, say, 1650 A.D. and the present, 1650 was about the coldest part of the Little Ice Age. We're, we're definitely warming between 1650 and the present. But if you're looking at, uh, uh, say, a longer time span, like 5,000 years, 5,000 years was the climatic optimum. 5,000 years ago was called the altothermal or hypsothermal. Uh, that was the warmest part of the Holocene. Sea level was higher, temperatures were warmer, and we've been cooling for the last 5,000 years. So whether we're cooling or warming depends on the time scale you look at. If you look at 20,000 years ago to the present, 20,000 years ago the Earth was in the grip of a major glacial uh, stage. Uh, Canada was covered with one to two to even three miles of ice, as was uh, England. <laughs> And where you're standing now is under an ice sheet. Um, and so uh, sea level was about uh, 400, 300, 400 feet below where it is now. There was more continental landmass. There was less ocean surface. Uh, the climate was radically different. But if you go back 125,000 years, the last interglacial uh, temperatures were warmer than present. And we know that from the distribution of pollen and plants and animals and things like that in the fossil record. And sea level was maybe a couple meters higher than it is now. Nobody was driving cars. Uh, this was all natural cyclical climate change between full glacial and full interglacial conditions. And then on top of that, you've got the smaller, higher frequency climate cycles operating. So it's a very easy subject to confuse the public on because it's very complex and we're still learning about it. Well, I think you can line all of this up alongside um, other issues such as terrorism and the threat of pandemics and see that you know there are certain cadres of people, institutions that are definitely using this for their own um, agendas. But I think ultimately, and kind of in conclusion, I guess, for me, I look at it and I just think you know the world has basically been ending forever in the eyes of some people or perhaps even in the eyes of humanity collectively, whether suddenly or gradually, it's the world is ending. We've seen that with the 2012 thing that came and went. And it's almost like there's a need for it. It's almost like we have, you know, we're so human centric. We're so focused on that, you know, we're simul simultaneously masters of the earth, but we're also a cancer on the earth. And it's always all about us and our fate. And we're really just part of a much, much bigger picture. 
I, I totally agree with you. You know, in fact, this this uh, author, this award-winning geologist from Australia, Ian Plymer, who wrote the book I was telling you about heaven and earth, he devotes about 10 or 20 pages to looking at all the different periods in history and groups in history that have proclaimed the coming end of the world and everybody sold their property and, you know, gathered on the steps of the church or whatever to wait for the end. And and this is something deeply embedded in human nature, I guess, uh, but it's never happened. And as I say, the Earth's been around almost 5 billion years. It's probably going to be around for about that much longer. And uh, we're like bugs on a sequoia tree, if you want to use a biological metaphor. You know, how can we possibly understand the sequoia tree if we're a, a bug that, you know, lives for a season, you know, or less? Um, this is this is a... <laughs> Yeah, this is an interesting dynamic. There's a lady in town here that I've bet now for the last couple of years that she told me she's sure California is going to break up and fall into the sea. And I, and I said, I'm sure it isn't, you know, so we bet $2. And I won in 2011, and I won in 2012, and now she wants to do it for 2013. She's just sure that California is going to break up and fall into the sea. Well, the bottom line is geologically that's not possible. What you could have is an eight-point earthquake, which could do a lot of damage, but, and that could be caused by humans, but it's not going to break up and fall into the sea in a year or in a minute or something like that. That's not possible. Fascinating. Well, Eric, um, just to wrap things up for today, um, you've already mentioned your website, uh, naturalclimatechange.us. Now, I know you've got more than one, uh, including uh, your music website. So perhaps you care to tell listeners about that and just anything generally you'd like to share. Yeah, well, I've got four websites, and now I'm going to start another one. The four I have... Uh, one was is 911nwo.com. Obviously, NWO is New World Order. Obviously, I knew 911 was also a hoax when it happened, and I've been studying, trying to understand that. Um, and that gets in, I think, to the study of exotic weaponry, directed energy weapons. Uh, so, And then there's naturalclimatechange.us. And, and I did one uh, as a local looking at the importance of the local the freshwater aquifer here called waterwatchalliance.us. And then my musical website, I've always been a musician in my heart, and I've played guitar ever since junior high school, and I've played banjo now as well as piano. And I've got about 15 CDs as well as a movie that I've made, uh, and that uh, can be looked at on my uh, website, ericcarlstrom.com. That's E-R-I-C-K-A-R-L-S-T-R-O-M.com. So those are my four websites. And now that I'm retired, I have more time to do what I love, which is research whatever is interesting to me and do my music and then hopefully keep these websites uh, more or less current. Well, Eric Karlstrom, thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Yeah, thank you, Greg. Well, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website, that's legalize-freedom.com, and there you'll find an archive of programs on many equally fascinating topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com. <laughs>